Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Hey man, you guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. So this week, I came across an article that said how to trick your brain into being happy. And I clicked on it because I love a good tricking. And it was a neurologist explaining how you can fool your own brain into feeling happier by faking a smile. If you just like, you're feeling sad, you're feeling depressed, you're feeling angry, and you can manage one of these, your brain will release chemicals and part of it will just be like, I feel like I'm having a great time right now. Which made me realize the brain has got to be the stupidest smart thing ever invented because our brains are clever enough to understand the chemicals that are released and what causes them to be released and how they affect us. But our brains are so dumb, they don't even see it coming when our brains decide to trick our brains. I just said the part that releases the chemicals, you're like, you didn't hear that plan being hatched. You were part of the plan, dude. It's the same brain. That's dumber than rocks. I was like, it's like being shocked when you show up at the surprise party you threw yourself. I don't get it. But I'm honestly glad that my brain can trick me into feeling happier because we live in a messed up world and it's difficult sometimes not to feel overwhelmed by the brokenness and the emptiness of that. It's difficult not to feel depressed, even when you're a Christian. And there are some people in the church world and some certain streams of theology that say a Christian should never feel depressed. And if you do, you're a bad follower of Jesus and God is disappointed in you and you just need to pray harder and have bigger faith until you don't feel like that anymore. But the reality of our world, you guys, is that sometimes you end up broken and dry and God has something to say to you when you're in that space, but it is not a message of shame or rejection. For the last six weeks, we've been in this series called When the River Runs Dry, digging into the life and times of the prophet Elijah. And we've been talking about what to do when God's provisions dry up in our lives. And this morning, I want to wrap the series up by talking about what to do when our hope dries up. Like when the river inside you runs dry, how do you move forward? And real quick recap for those of you who haven't been around. We first met Elijah in 1 Kings 17 when God called him to deliver a pretty intense message to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, these wicked rulers who had led the people of Israel astray and caused them to worship idols, specifically this one named Baal, whom they thought was responsible for the dew and the rain. And Elijah showed up and told him, God says he's going to send a drought to remind Israel who's in charge of the dew and the rain and everything else and to call them back from their oppressive idolatry. But Ahab and Jezebel got really mad about that message and they decided to shoot the messenger because he was right there. He's the easiest one to shoot. They're going to murder your face off. And Elijah freaked out and God's like, okay, go hide out in a ravine. And in the middle of this drought where there was no water anywhere, he provided a brook so that Elijah had water and he provided ravens to deliver his food every day. It's like an ancient form of Uber Eats. But then one morning he woke up and the river had run dry and the birds didn't show. And he's like, What's going on, Lord? 
And God said, I, I turned off the flow because it's time for you to go to a pagan enemy land where you're going to need to rely on a widow to provide for you, which is was just ridiculous in the ancient Near Eastern world, especially. And yet, miraculously, God used a widow to provide for him for about three years until he said, okay, it's time for you to go back to the king and queen who've been hunting you all this time. And Elijah obediently, if a little bit reluctantly, went back. And last week we talked about this incredible showdown where he called King Ahab and a bunch of his nobles and the 450 prophets of Baal to meet him on top of Mount Carmel. And he said, hey, look, God or Baal, they both cannot be real. So here's what I think we should do. Let's build two altars. We'll throw a bull on both of them. You guys pray to Baal. I'll pray to God. Whichever God answers with fire from heaven, maybe we should worship that one. And everyone thought, that's pretty legit. We can, we can make that happen. And Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first. And they spent an entire day just crying out, begging something to happen. And Elijah just sat there and made fun of him. I kind of picture him like Uncle Si from Duck Dynasty. He was just sipping his sweet tea like, oh, maybe he's on vacation, Jack. Maybe he went to the bathroom. Maybe he's napping and nothing happened because of course it didn't happen because Baal isn't real. And then Elijah prayed. At first, he had him douse his bull with water. And they're like, it's a drought. We shouldn't do that. He's like, don't worry about it. And he prayed and God sent this fire that consumed the water and the bull and even the rocks. And everyone there fell on their faces. And they're like, oh, we made a mistake worshiping Baal. God is the true God. And then they gathered up the prophets of Baal and killed them all in response to the child sacrifice that they'd been participating in all the other harm that they'd caused to Israel. And then Elijah prayed that it would rain. And sure enough, after three years of nothing, storm clouds started to appear on the horizon. So King Ahab hopped in his chariot and headed back to the capital city. And God showed up and told Elijah, hey, I'm going to equip you with some supernatural power. What I want you to do is run ahead of him to the city. And so Elijah takes off running. And the whole time he's thinking, all right, this is the moment. Either the king and queen are going to repent or I'm going to watch them be overthrown as the people of Israel turn their hearts back to the one true God and begin to step into the beautiful story he's wanted to write for the nation of Israel all along. I mean, this is unquestionably Elijah's greatest moment. It's one of the greatest moments in the history of the people of God living on mission with God. And we're going to pick it up this morning in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. If you need a Bible, they're free at the Next Steps area. We'd love it if you take one before you go. But we're here. A miracle just happened on Mount Carmel. Elijah's ready to see the transformation of the entire nation. And believe this, he would not have hoofed it all the way back to the capital city if that's not what he thought was going to happen. This is what we read. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. All right, uh, not how Elijah thought things were going to go down. Instead of repenting, instead of being like, whoa, I should follow God, Jezebel gets salty that her God lost, and she's like, hey, I'm going to murder you. Talk about being a sore loser. She should have turned to God, but she turned on Elijah, and she said, like, hey, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. Now, Elijah, at this point in his life, has seen God protect and provide again and again and again and again and again and again. And so he should have just laughed 
in Jezebel's face, right? I mean, certainly that's what he did, right? Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Really? Doesn't that seem like a little bit of an odd choice given everything he's been through? What happened? What I think happened is Elijah is human. Sometimes we read the Bible and we feel like the heroes in there are superhuman. They're just cut from a different cloth than us. Not Elijah. He's like you and me. Right off the heels of one of the greatest moments of his life, he gets scared and he's afraid and everything comes crashing down quickly. Things didn't happen how he thought they would, so he panicked. I don't know about you guys, but I have been in that place. And when it happens, when life isn't the way you thought it would be, when the river inside you runs dry, it's easy to make bad decisions and critical mistakes. Elijah makes a few, and this is the first one. He let his problem define his perspective. Perspective is how we see what we see. And it allows us to assign different levels of importance to certain experiences we have. And Elijah had a very real problem. I've seen the Godfather and Goodfellas. I know when a powerful person puts a hit out on you, you usually end up dead. And so he's understandably upset about this. But the weird thing is it's not a new problem. She's been trying to kill him for three years. And every time God just whisks him away. It's like Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner. So when she said, I'm going to get you this time, he should have given her one of these. Okay, boomer. I'm waiting for it to happen. But in the myopia of the moment, he saw his life through the lens of the threat rather than like zooming it out and seeing his life through the thread of God's love. And I think it's worth pressing pause in his story right now and having all of you, all of us ask the question, is there an area in my life where I'm letting my problem define my perspective? Is there something going on in your life right now where you're scared and you're frightened and you're frustrated and you're a little bit worried that God might not show up for you even though he's been faithful to you again and again and again in the past? I think for all of us, that's a fairly normal experience. And if you're there right now, you got good company. It's exactly what happened to Elijah. He didn't know why things were happening the way that they were happening. And so he took his eyes off God and put them on his problem. And he reacted in fear and panic. He took off running. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Here's the second mistake Elijah made in this dark moment. He let his fear drain him physically. This part's fascinating to me. He had just run a marathon. God was like, hey, I'm going to equip you. I want you to run 25 miles ahead of Ahab's chariot to get to Jezreel. And, And he went and he did it. And I was reading that this week and I'd forgotten that part of the story. And I thought, I would also need a miracle to run a marathon. I think God needs supernatural power to run a 5K. My 40th year on planet Earth has not been kind to me. But... Here he goes, and, and he runs this marathon, and so he's thinking, hey, I'm a really good runner. And now he takes off running again, except this time God didn't tell him to run, and God didn't equip him to run. He's just running because he's scared. 
And to be fair, being scared is a motivation that can make a man run. I heard an interview with Patrick Mahomes not that long ago, and someone asked him, how come you seem to be just a little bit faster than whatever defender is chasing you? Because at the NFL Combine, your speed is, is not impressive, man. And Mahomes said, I'm scared. They're 300 pounds, and they're trying to get me. This is exactly where Elijah is. Like, they're trying to get me. I'm just going to go. Except the problem is Jezreel to Beersheba is not 10 yards like a Mahomes scramble. It's not even another marathon. It's 100 miles. Elijah ran 100 miles, and then he went one more day into the wilderness. And the word for wilderness in Hebrew is the same as the word for desert, because it's the Middle East. That's what the wilderness looks like. And I find this to be the peak of irony. Here's why. Most of Israel is experiencing rain for the first time in three years. And Elijah goes to the driest place he could find. Everywhere else, the rivers are beginning to flow again, but the river inside him has dried up. And so he goes and he hides in the desert. And he does it alone. Notice, he ran with his servant. And this wasn't just like a guy who works for him. This is his best friend and his confidant and his coworker and his source of communal strength. And he left him behind and he went alone. And this is the third mistake Elijah makes. He let his confusion cut him off from his community. So he's sitting there, isolated and exhausted, beaten down and all alone. And we read, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And I just think, man, it's heartbreaking that he's looking at this moment feeling like, ah, I'm just like all of them that followed after pagan idols. I have no hope. There's, there's no reason for me to even keep going. Like the idea of facing the future is more painful to me than I could possibly imagine. So God would just, just kill me off. I just think so many of us have probably been there. We've had moments where we felt like whatever battle was up ahead of us simply could not be fought. Whatever mountain was up ahead of us simply couldn't be climbed. And I think we're more vulnerable to those experiences when we're alone. Like whenever the river inside you starts to run dry, whenever you're broken, whenever life feels like it isn't the way it was meant to be, the enemy of your soul is going to whisper to you, you should hide. You should run. Don't let anybody see anything other than the cropped, filtered, edited social media version of your life. Bail on your community. Bail on church. Bail on house groups. Just hide until you've got yourself all put together. Go do it alone. That's what Elijah did. And in that moment, he's like, I can't even, I can't even move forward. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. You guys, I love this so much. This moment in the Bible has been an anchor for my soul in some of my most difficult seasons. 
And park is something that's kind of easy to gloss over in English. God sent an angel, and the word for angel in Hebrew, in Hebrew is malach, which literally means messenger. Like this whole thing in Elijah's life started when Jezebel sent a malach, a messenger, to speak death. And then God sent a messenger to Elijah to speak life. We live in a world that will constantly speak death into our souls, but we serve a God who constantly speaks life. And what's fascinating is like, I think if we heard like there's a message of life from God delivered by an angel in the Bible, we almost expect it to be something super inspirational and powerful. But this time, this message that Elijah desperately needed was, woof, man, you're a wreck. You need a nap and a sandwich. And then he didn't listen. So the messenger came back. He's like, no, 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 no. I really mean it. A nap and a sandwich. Don't worry about anything else. Just chill for a minute. Try and put down a nice Italian beef, mozzarella, hot peppers, extra gravy, just mmm. And then take a snooze. And we're going to go from there. It's so great. Because Elijah had just run himself to the brink of exhaustion. And there wasn't a way to go forward. And so this morning, I have some deep theological advice for all of you. All right, this is why they pay me the big bucks, both of them every week. Um, When you feel like the river inside of you is running dry, make it a priority to get some good sleep and some good food. I know that sounds simplistic, but just bear with me for a second. The truth is, it's totally simplistic. That is not going to fix any of the problems that are going wrong in your life. However, it's a great place to start because you will not be able to fight any of the battles you got ahead of you if you're physically exhausted. Because you're a psychosomatic being. You have a body and a soul that are connected in what philosophers and theologians call a closely interacting dualism. That's a fancy way of saying they affect one another. And we all know that. Show of hands, be honest. How many people in this room have ever been hangry? Like you're grumpy at the entire universe and it's not about anything really other than the fact that your tummy is empty. And then like a toddler, as soon as you eat a meal, you're fine again. Anybody? Yeah, it's a universal human condition. That's just how it works to be us. It's why the devil didn't try and tempt Jesus right after his baptism, after like the voice of the Father had thundered from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He waited until Jesus had been alone, fasting in the desert for 40 days because he knew as soon as Jesus took on human flesh, he was at his most vulnerable spiritually when he was at his most vulnerable physically and relationally. Now, Jesus was Jesus, so it didn't work on him, but on you and me. <laughs> like, I have a post-it note above my desk. I talk about all my post-it notes occasionally, and most of them are Bible verses or, like, quotes from theologians that I want to remember, but one of them isn't like that at all. It just has four questions on it. Are you running on rest or just caffeine right now? When is the last time you took a break? Have you fed your body the nutrients it needs And how much water have you consumed today? And if you looked at that wall and you said, like, be a passionary leader, God, your will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else, amen. Not by strength, not by power, but my spirit, or by my spirit says, Yahweh Tzabaoth, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Are you tired, Mike? You'd be like, one of these things is not like the others. 
One of these things doesn't belong, but it does. It belongs because we can't be fully who we're made to be when we run our bodies into the ground, and yet it's a super easy thing to do, to believe, unless we keep going and going and going, the whole world is going to fall apart. And so I just want to challenge you this morning, as you take a look at the problems in your life right now, the struggles, the places where things aren't the way you want them to be, the things that are weighing heavy on your soul, is it possible there's a physical component to any of those? And maybe there is. Maybe you're sitting here and you're just beat because you've run yourself past your breaking point. There's been so much on your plate that you're tired. And the most spiritually, relationally, physically faithful and obedient thing you can do to God, maybe the only thing you need to get out of this message today, your only action step, is take a nap. I'd prefer if you waited till after the service. But (laughs) some of you are getting a head start. And I guess thank you for listening to the message. Anyways, Elijah took the angel up on the offer. He got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Here's the thing about God. He never asks questions because he wants to know the answer. He already knows them. He asks questions of us because he's like, you might want to be thinking about this. And in this particular instance, he's telling Elijah, this is not where I told you to go. But Elijah's still living in panic mode. And so he spent his strength going to the wrong stop. He got fueled up and headed in the wrong direction. And again, I see myself and so many of us in his story. We just go on journeys God never called us to. We shoulder heavy burdens God never meant to hand to us because we're convinced like we just got to kind of do it all on our own. And like deep, uncomfortable confession moment today, I constantly find myself doing things that are not on my plate, they're on God's. Jesus made it really clear, I will build my church. And yet... I spent so much of my life and so much of my stress being like, yeah, yeah, but I got to build. I got to build. I got to build. And every week I do stuff that's not even on my task list. It's other people's tasks. It's not stuff I'm good at. It's not stuff I can do uniquely. It's not even my calling. I just want everything to be perfect. I want to do great things for God. And I want to believe deep in my soul that I'm the Energizer Bunny and I'm working out of an endless reserve tank of time and energy. But you guys are probably going to be shocked to hear this morning. It turns out I, I, I do not have an endless reserve tank. Yeah, I was as surprised as you. But good news, I'm dumb enough to keep living like I do again and again and again. And I think like, it's worthwhile this morning for all of us to ask ourselves the question, if you did an inventory of all the energy you spend in a week, like if you were able to measure it out and see what direction it's headed in, are you using the strength God's given you to do the tasks God's given you? Or are you making a lot of wrong stops and extra stops along the way? Because it's a super simple thing to do, even unintentionally. For what it's worth, I don't believe at all that Elijah intended to be unfaithful to God by going to Mount Horeb. He wasn't like trying to do a Jonah and run in the other direction of God's calling. He just did the same thing so many of us do every single week and never asked 
He didn't seek God's direction. He followed his feelings. He's like, Jezebel's trying to kill me. I like my head on my shoulders. I'm just gonna go hide out in a cave. And he wasn't trying to be disobedient, but he ended up in a place God never wanted him to be, still tired and still alone because he didn't ask. And God showed up and he's like, hey, what are you doing here? But Elijah was pretty furious. Like at this point, too many things had gone wrong and he's mad at God and he's like, you want to know what I'm doing here? Well, Lord, I will tell you what I'm doing here. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. They put your prophets down to the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. He's like, Frankenstein's at Festivus. He's like, I have a lot of problems with you, Lord. I'm going to tell you about it. That fireball thing at Mount Carmel. Fine, it was cool. It was actually, it was super cool, but it didn't work. They're still following Baal. They didn't even even repent. And now they're trying to murder me and I'm alone. I'm carrying the whole burden alone. What are you going to do about my problems? And God answers him. He's like, ah, just go go stand on the mountain. I'll be there in a minute. I'm going to pass by. (laughs) And what happens next is so cool. But I want to press pause because I don't want us to miss this. Like Elijah asked God for a plan to solve all of his problems. And God offered him his presence. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And this is so paradoxically beautiful because I think like fire breathing, earth shaking, rock shattering power is exactly what Elijah was looking for. That's the kind of stuff that could solve his issues. It could take out Ahab and Jezebel and all their enemies and set things up the way that Elijah thought they were gonna go. And mind bendingly enough, this is the same exact mountain. And there are a lot of Bible scholars who believe that he's in the same exact cave Moses was in as he was leading the Israelites out of Egypt and God did show up in fire and smoke and earthquake. This is a thing that he's done in this place in the past. But this time he shows up in a gentle whisper. Which interestingly enough is a really hard phrase to translate. Some translations say like the sound of a gentle whisper. Or a still, small voice. And the point is it's delicate. There's a stillness and almost a silence to the way God shows up for Elijah. And I desperately wish we knew what that still, small voice spoke to him. But I have a good guess. I am with you. I love you. That's the message that shows up on the pages of Scripture again and again and again and again. And I think, like, if you take nothing else from the message this morning, if you remember nothing else that I said, please remember this, because I think it's the big idea of this whole part of Elijah's story. Sometimes in this shattered world, we're convinced we need a miracle We need something huge from God, but what we need most is not the presence of God's power. It's the power 
of God's presence. I know, I know that's something I need from my Heavenly Father because I'm a father. I can still remember when each of my four kids was born, the first time I held them, they're tiny. You just look at them and you're like, I, I got you. Always, I don't, I don't care what happens. I got your back. I'm with you. I didn't yell that at them. I didn't even say it in a normal voice. You just whispered it to them. And in the 30 plus combined years, all of my kids have been alive. They have very rarely needed the presence of my power. But the power of my presence has been a game changer on repeat. You guys, sometimes we don't even know, but what we're desperate for is the presence of God. So God shows up in this still small voice. He tells Elijah, I am with you. Now, what are you doing here? But Elijah is so mad, he's like, what am I doing here? You're gonna ask me the same question. You're about to get the same answer. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets down to the sword. On the other one left, now they're trying to kill me too. This is so great. He's like, I am committed to my complaint. I'm coming at you again. You still saw my problem. I was looking for power. That's not what I got. And he's blinded to the thing he needs most because he wants God's power. And God gave him presence, but he just, he echoes the same exact thing to God. Again, like I need a plan, I need a miracle. And thankfully, like graciously, encouragingly, God responds to his stupidity, not by screaming back. I mean, like, that's it, man, I'm done with you. And not by like smiting him on the mountain. Instead, God says this. He goes, go back to where you came, to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, if we didn't know any better, it would almost sound like God's telling him, hey, just shut up and deal, man. I got stuff for you to do. You got to go anoint a new king of Israel. You think Jezebel wants you dead now? <laughs> Wait till that. And that's true. She's not going to be happy about it. But what God is really saying, the point of this message to Elijah is, you are not alone and you are not done. Your story isn't over. I don't know this whole thing happened because in a panic, you thought I failed you. You thought Mount Carmel was going to be the turning point and everyone was going to repent after that. And it's not what went down. And so then you're like, oh, God must not have showed up. But it doesn't always work like that. I'm kind of doing a thing at a level that you're not seeing. It wasn't me who failed you. It was the, your, your narrow window of expectation that failed you. Because you thought... I wasn't real if I didn't move this way, but I, I'm working on a level that you're not working on. I'm doing more than you even see, and it's not all on your shoulders. You're not alone. I can work through pagan kings. Hazael of Aram, he is just as wicked and just as awful as King Ahab, but I'm actually gonna accomplish my purposes in the world through him. So go anoint him, tell him he's gonna be the next king. I'm also working through the 7,000, Mr. I'm alone, the 7,000 other people who are chasing me right now. It's not just yours to carry. I think this is so important for us because God doesn't always, or like, always, God doesn't often do what I think he should do when I think he should do it. But that doesn't mean he's not good. 
It just means he sees what I don't see, and he's working through more than just my life. That's what he tells Elijah. Hey, I'm working through more than just your life. You don't have to carry the weight of that anymore. Just do what I ask you to do, and remember, I'm with you every step of the way. Even in the times where I don't move the way you thought I was going to move, and it doesn't end up the way you thought it was going to end up. I think God's got that exact same message for us today. He's got a mission for us, and it matters. There's stuff he stamped our names on, your name. There's stuff he stamped this community's name, the name of Vision Church, that he wants done in the world, and he's going to equip us to do it, but it's not all on us. We just have to be faithful to the things he's placed in front of us. And in the moments when it doesn't go like we thought it was going to go, in the moments when the rivers inside us dry up and the moments when we're empty and we're afraid and we're discouraged and we're depressed, we need to remember that there will always be a temptation to be terrified and to act like Elijah. In those moments, something in us is going is, is to want to let our, our problem define our perspective. Something in us is, is going to want to let our fear drain us physically. And something in us is going to want to let our confusion cut us off from community. That's real. Because there is a physical and a relational and a spiritual element to all of our struggles in this shattered world. And one of my great frustrations is we live in, a, in an era where some people emphasize one of those to the exclusion of the others. Like there are experts out there who are like, it's all spiritual. If you're feeling drained and depressed, you just gotta pray more. If you pray enough, all of that will go away because the metaphysical world is the most real reality. And still others are like, it's all chemical. It's just brain chemistry. If you can guess, check, and revise and get the right concoction of drugs, that will take care of everything because the physical world is the most real reality. And still others are like, you, you got to talk it out. The thing to do is get a friend, get a counselor, talk it out, process your trauma with somebody else. And once you've done that, that is the solution because your feelings are the most real reality. And you guys, I cannot help but look at the reality of the people's lives I'm crashing into every single day. I cannot help but think about my own soul. I can't help but read the Bible. I can't help but dig into the story of Elijah in this moment that feels like painfully, personally familiar, where his greatest success very quickly spiraled into fear, hopelessness, and self-loathing, and feel like all of this is holistic. There's a spiritual, physical, and relational reality to the pain and frustration we experience in this world, and that's why I am convinced that God heals us. He helps us be more whole and holy. God works in our lives through people, prayer, and pills. I had a headache this morning. I stand here, but by the grace of all three. <laughs> like people, prayer, and pills, baby, in various concoctions and various levels at various times in our lives. There's a physical, spiritual, and relational component to the suffering we experience. And so what I want to do today is just beg you, when things go wrong, when the last reservoirs of hope are drying up inside your soul, please don't run yourself ragged. Carrying a burden that was never meant to be yours, believing if, if you don't do it all on your own, everything will fall apart. And then sit there and wonder, hey, why am I 
drained and discouraged. And please, please, when you experience painful moments, don't run from your people. Don't run from God's people because you're too afraid to be vulnerable with your pain in a way that allows them to come alongside you and build you up. And please, don't let the myopia of your experiences in your worst seasons cause you to take your eyes off of God and doubt that he's good. Because he is good and he's with us. Life is difficult. It's never gonna be easy. Sometimes it feels impossible to make our way forward. Sometimes the rivers inside of us run dry. And when that happens, what we're desperate for is like for God to show up miraculously. And when that's needed, he shows up in power and it's awesome. But the thing we need most, the thing that transforms every moment, especially our driest and most difficult ones, is the power of his presence because he is with us and he is good. Will you just pray with me? Lord, thank you for being present with us. Thanks for being patient with us in all of our foolishness, in all of our selfishness, in all the times that we turn our backs and, and run because we're scared. Lord, I pray for every single person in this room. There's not one of us that isn't facing some sort of challenge. There's not one of us that's gonna make it through the next week or the next month or the next year without some giant to fight, some mountain to climb, some wall that's blocking our way to the places you'd have us go. There's not one of us that has not experienced and will not experience a moment where the rivers inside of our souls have run dry. And I pray in those moments that we would trust you, that we'd lean on one another as a community and lean on your love because you're good and you're with us. Help us never to forget that. Just thunder it in our souls. In that still small voice, remind us, I am with you. And help us walk out of here today and live like that's true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna celebrate communion this morning. This is something we do as a body of believers in remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. At the last supper, he got his disciples together and he passed bread and said, this bread is my body broken for you. And then he passed a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And the old covenant was in place because the consequence of sin is death and life is in the blood. And so God set up a system where the blood of goats and bulls and doves could cover over sin for a little while, but not pay the price of it. And then Jesus showed up and said, here's the new covenant. My blood shed once pays the full price for all sin, for all time, past, present, and future. Because I give my life for you. If you just believe it counts for you. And he died so that we could be forgiven. And then he unlocked death from the inside so that we could be set free and we could live forever with him. And so we celebrate communion. We remember the fact that the God of eternity crashed into the human story and spilled his blood to pay the price for our sin so we could be forgiven and set free. And we're gonna celebrate that together. I'm gonna pray and then invite you as the band plays to make your way back to one of the communion stations and, and praise God in community with one another for the fact that he loved us enough not to abandon us into our, in our sin, but to make a way for us to be forgiven and free. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for setting aside your glory for us. Thank you for paying a price we could have never paid on our own. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we are free.
because you died and you rose again. Thank you for the new covenant in your blood, which means all of our sins are paid for. We praise you for that. Amen.